welcome to this week's show of Who Cares, What's the Point? The podcast about the mind for people who think. In this week's show, I'm talking with Dr. Jonathan Jong, and we are talking about religious belief and thinking about death. Now, we think that the fear of death may be part of the motivation as to why we have religious belief. But Jonathan was interested in whether we put that aside when we are thinking about our own death. That is, do we become less religiously skeptical when we think about our own death? Have a listen to the conversation between Jonathan and I and make up your own mind. So welcome, Jonathan. Thank you for joining us on the show today. I thought I would start by asking you what brought you to this line of research in the first place. So that depends on what you mean by this line of research. Um, the, the paper deals with death anxiety on one hand and religious belief on, on the other. Um, and for a long time, these were just two disparate bodies of research done by psychologists, sociologists, and and so forth. Um, which is not to say, which is not to suggest that I was the first to bring them together. But but these are generally speaking two two spheres of work. I think I, I, I mostly approach this from the you know like how did how do people get religious kind of perspective. So it's it's really the religious belief side of things that I stumbled into first. Um, like, why why is that true? So like, so I, I, I'm quite, uh, I'm quite religious myself. And a lot of this has to do with trying to work out why that might be. Um, and that broadens into questions about why other people are religious and why there is religion at all in the world. Um, and like, and everywhere in the world. And you know, why religions are similar in some ways and different in, in other ways. Uh, and, and so as a psychologist, um, I, I had a set of tools that I could use to answer questions like this. Um, uh, and as the particular kind of psychologist I was, a, a social psychologist, um, that, that narrows the field a little bit. So, so you know, I, like I didn't look into genes. I didn't look into, into neuroscience. Like I don't really do developmental work. Um, like most social psychologists, I'm interested in what motivates um, human behavior, belief, um, and, and affect. Uh, which is to say, what kinds of psychological needs might be fulfilled by 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 any given phenomenon in question, and, and in this case, by by religious belief. So, so you know, when I was in grad school, I wrote a list down. Right here are some things that could motivate religious belief. Um, as usual, I, I talked to lots of lay people to ask them about their intuitions. Um, I, I know we're told often that that research should be theory driven, and and that's true as far as it goes. But I'm also interested in just working out what people think. Um, about how humans work and working out empirically whether or not people's intuitions about other people and themselves um, are, are right. And, and, and for a lot of people, the fear of death is, is, is on top of that list. Uh, so I started on the top and I never really got away from that. <laughs> um, and you bring a particular sort of uh, framework with when you say social psychology, you're in particular using an experimental social psychology approach to this. And maybe we can talk a little bit about what that looks like when you explain your study. Um, but sure. I, I am really interested in this um, taking the latter end of life, this um, death anxiety, um, because that doesn't get talked about a lot um, in terms of um, how psychologists view life and this existential anxiety mapping onto religion. So I'm, I'm curious about that. And that's, I guess, what caught my interest about this paper. But also that your phenomenological approach, the idea that people's descriptions about what they think are also important. Yeah, no, maybe not so much people's descriptions about what they think, but certainly people's descriptions of what 
other people think. Um, maybe these two things are, are, are highly correlated. I mean, I take for granted that people's introspection um, tend to be an unreliable guide to themselves. We, we don't we don't really ever know what's going on in our own heads, and and decades of social psychological research can tell you that, right? So so people often say, you know, like I, I'm not racist, but and then you give them, you know, some subtle um, implicit prejudice measure, and it turns out that they kind of are, or or they'll say. You know, if if I win the lottery, I'll be super happy. Um, so this is called effective forecasting in the in the jargon. And it turns out that people are just very bad at that kind of thing, working out how they'll feel if something happens to them. So, so, so I think it's not it's not that I think people's intuitions about themselves ought to be taken for granted, but I do think that uh, that people's intuitions about human behavior and the causes of human behavior are interesting starting points for research. Um, it, it hooks people in as well, right? So you know, you have a conversation with people on the street. Um, or, or in any other kind of public forum, and you ask them why they think humans do particular things that humans do, and people tend to have opinions, uh, and they tend to have fairly strong convictions about these opinions. They, they think they're right, like like we all do, but but these are all empirical questions, right? So so our intuitions um, about why people are the way they are, you know, why why some people vote for Donald Trump, etc. Um, we we can test these things, um, and it's better to. If insofar as our beliefs about other people lead to behavior toward them, it's good to have accurate pictures of why people do the things they do. And I think that goes to the heart of uh, what you're trying to tackle here, this idea that we have um, explicit processes that we are consciously aware of, these attitudes, and we think that actually this is a good predictor as to how we might behave in the future. But actually, there are implicit processes which are far less accessible, but nevertheless influence how we might behave. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, again, this is not to say I think I think it's w- w- whenever people hear about the difference between implicit attitudes and explicit attitudes, the immediate uh, assumption is that our implicit attitudes are quote unquote true or real, uh, and that our explicit attitudes are somehow facades or lies. And 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 this isn't the thing I want to suggest. I, I think I mean what what I'm trying to say is, is the uncontroversial thing. Uh, that that human beings are are complicated. That we are we're all of us uh, hypocrites, I, I guess, uh, in the sense that we hold multiple attitudes at different levels, which may be mutually contradictory, and all of which might predict behavior in different contexts. So it is the case that our explicit attitudes predict our behaviors, but they don't predict all our behaviors. Uh, and some behaviors that are not predicted by our explicit attitudes are predicted by implicit attitudes. And that's difficult to reconcile, isn't it? The the actual human condition where we can hold all these contradictory beliefs and ideas all at the same time. And at the at the end of that, we have a common output, which is what we actually do. Yeah, but there's not one thing that we actually do, right? So so it's not the case that there's one behavioral output for any given set of attitudes. So, uh, so it might be the case that uh, we vote for Barack Obama, but nevertheless, you know, um, treat other black people poorly or something like this. Like, like you know, just hu- humans behave contradictorily as well. We, we don't behave consistently. Um, and that is reflected in the fact that we don't think or feel consistently. Um, it, it's that I think, I think human beings, or, or at least maybe human beings in the sort of educated industrialized West have this desire to think of themselves as consistent agents um and and like that i think is is just not quite an accurate picture of what humans are like 
we could possibly go off on a tangent here around the recent research that has come out around personality and how consistent that is over time when they were looking over at time, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's actually right. what they're finding is that it doesn't seem to be that consistent at all. No, no, that's right. Yeah. Um, but let's get back to your research and particularly your um, your set of three studies that you did here. What were you um, looking to test when you were setting up these studies? Right. Um, so you mentioned earlier that that um, that considerations of of existence and death, the end of life, don't feature very much in 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 the psychological sciences. And th- there's a sense in which that is true. But there there has been for a while now a growing um, theoretical program called terror management theory. Uh, this is based on the work of a cultural anthropologist in working mostly in the 60s and 70s. Um, he, he died quite young. Um, and his, his Pulitzer Prize winning book um, was called The Denial of Death. And he had this crazy idea that, that uh, like all of human, and like this is not a great exaggeration, uh, my characterization of his work, uh, but it is a slight exaggeration. So the idea is that all of human achievement and endeavor is predicated upon the knowledge and fear of our own deaths, right? Like everything, you know, to a rough approximation, um, is an attempt to to obtain either symbolic or literal immortality. And this spans the desire to have children, the desire to be famous, the desire to contribute to society and humanity in some way, and um, of course, religion, because religion provides not only uh, in many cases, the promise of literal immortality, but also the ability uh, and opportunity to join a group that is given cosmic significance, the church or whatever. Um, so so, so the, for the last, since the, the late 80s or so, there have been about 500 experiments um, which, which show that just thinking about death or being made to think about death um, compared to some control condition, either neutral or, or another potentially anxiety-inducing scenario, um, just thinking about that leads to all kinds of really interesting effects, including increasing the desire for fame, increasing the desire for children, um, increasing the desire to name your children after yourselves, increasing the desire to name stars after yourselves, um, etc. Um, and then there's a dark side to this, which is it also makes people... Um, more nationalistic and xenophobic and sexist and racist. Um, and, and the basic idea for all of those studies has been that uh, the, what, what thinking about death does is it drives us toward defending our cultural world worldviews. It, it drives us into our own camps. And so we dig our heels in and we go, right, um, you know, my race is the best and we derive self-esteem from this or, you know, my nation is the best and we derive self-esteem from this. And this is a way of, of obtaining uh, symbolic immortality. So, uh, and there's been relative, yeah. Sorry. So, no, as you're talking, I'm kind of thinking that it's actually quite polarizing. It it, it forces you to kind of um, move to one end of a pole or another. This is what it feels like you're talking about. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so it is it is very polarizing, and, and that word will come up again um, because when it comes to religion, this becomes interesting, right? So, if you are a non-religious person, then the thing that you ought to do if it's about if thinking about death leads to cultural worldview defense, it should lead you to run to your camp, which is to defend the, you know, your, your lack of belief, right? Or, or to defend godlessness or something like this, right? Uh, but, but if your concern is literal immortality, then you might be tempted toward religious belief. Hmm. So, so, so the, the general effect of polarization becomes complicated 
when it comes to religion per se, or, or any other form of literal immortality. Uh, so, and, and in this, you might include scientific forms of, of literal immortality. So this is something that no one has looked at yet, which I would like to do in the future, uh, which is uh, that in the last 10, 15 years or so, there's been more and more work, particularly out of Cambridge University, um, trying to work out how to extend human life uh, to, you know, like, by orders of magnitude. Right by working on our telomeres, or, or by uh, by 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 different kinds of, of caloric restriction diets, yes, um, etc. So so there are there there is interesting work now at least exploring the idea that we might obtain immortality or something like it scientifically, uh, and and so it's not the case that religion is, is the only at least in principle source of, of such things. Uh, so in any case. Uh, the, the, this polarization effect uh, is in the literature, uh, and that's what got me interested in in looking at this uh, when it comes to religious beliefs, uh, because the polarization hypothesis leads to one prediction among non-religious people, uh, but but the kind of quest for literal immortality leads to the opposite prediction, and I wanted to figure out which one was was true. Okay, so you've got these two alternative ways of perhaps explaining how people would um, think about religion when they're thinking about death. Yes, that's right. Okay, so um, what what did your first study do? How, how did you set that up and what were you looking to test in that? Because it was a series here. Yes, that's right. Uh, so as you say, I, I ran three studies uh, and I ran the first one first. Uh, you will not be so surprised to hear. Um, I, I, I did, I did what, what hundreds of studies have done before, which is divide people into groups, um, randomize. So, you know, we, we get, we get uh, a sample of, of people and we randomize them into groups. And the idea being that uh, they won't differ a priori on, for example, uh, their levels of religious belief. Uh, having randomized people into two groups, we exposed uh, one group to just a, a neutral task. They, we got them to, to think about uh, what it's like to watch television. Um, again, it's a task that has been used by other people before. Um, and in the more interesting condition, the experimental condition, we got people to to reflect on what it might be like to die, for themselves to die, not, not for other people to die. Hmm. What dying might feel like physically and, and how they feel about thinking about, about dying. Again, this is a paradigm that has been used by, by hundreds and hundreds of studies um, that, that I very briefly talked about earlier. Um, and, then, and then I just measured religious belief. I just asked people, you know, to what extent do you think these statements are true? Right? They, there exists a God, there exists angels and demons, et cetera, et cetera. And this process is um, known as priming, right? Yeah, so in, in some circles. Uh, yeah. so, so, so sometimes people think of priming as the more specific thing of showing people things very quickly. Uh, so, which is, I guess, more accurately subliminal priming. Mm. So this is a priming of sorts, which mm. is to say we expose people to, to stimuli of some kind um, and the stimuli um, affects their behavior. Mm. Uh, um, but, but, you know, I think to, to use priming in that way might be a little bit broad, but sure, but let, let's call it priming. Um, right, so we, so we prime one set of participants with death and we prime the other set of participants with some neutral topic. Um, again, a paradigm that has been used many times before uh, and we measure some outcome variable. Um, so, so the idea is this: uh, religious people, I think, um, we everybody predicts that they they, don't, they will get more religious because if their their quest for literal immortality uh, would suggest that they should believe even more firmly that you know in the afterlife and in God and, and all the rest of that. Uh, and and the kind of cultural worldview defense view also predicts this, right? That they will run uh, to their camps. Um, it would be interesting to look at how how religious people behave with respect to. Uh, religious beliefs that are not their own, 
right? And other people have done that work, which I'm happy to talk about later. So, so I didn't look at that. I, I mostly focused on uh, on Christians because they they were they were they were available to me. Uh, the, the the interesting thing hap- the interesting thing comes when we look when we think about non-religious people because their literal and and symbolic immortality come apart. Uh, the quest for literal immortality will suggest that they should drop their defenses and become uh, more religious, uh, or I guess it's more accurate to say uh, less non-religious. Mm. Um, and, uh, and and the cultural worldview defense view would suggest that they should run even further into their camps, which is to say they should become even more religiously skeptical. Uh, so it was a very simple test of this hypothesis. Uh, and again, I was mostly interested in looking at whether or not, uh, the, how, like how the, the non-religious people would, would behave. Um, and, and what I found uh, was in, in that study, a classic polarization effect. So, so this is, you know, again, hundreds of studies have shown this. There was nothing, as it were, surprising. Uh, if you if you talk to people who had done this kind of research before, they would say, look, the literature suggests that there will be polarization, and lo and behold, what you find is polarization. Religious people become more religious. Non-religious people become less so. Um, it's a classic world food defense effect. Mm-hmm. So that was study one. Okay, so then what what got you curious here that that made you think, actually, there's something else to be looking at here? Right. Uh, so I, I think this is maybe the innovation. Like, like I, I'm not sure there's other work using this paradigm which has measured um, attitudes implicitly. There, there might be a few papers when it comes to like prejudice work, but like like a lot of social psychologists, um, I have for a long time been wary about asking people questions explicitly um, for for a variety of reasons. Uh, chief among them that that people are reluctant to to reveal their attitudes. Um, in the lab, especially when it comes to to attitudes that might be sensitive, such as about race um, or about religion. So this whole movement of of creating tasks to measure people's attitudes implicitly um, kind of started when it was no longer socially acceptable to to say prejudicial things about people of minority ethnic groups. Uh, and so, 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 so psychologists um, in the 60s had to figure out how to assess prejudice if we can't just ask people? Um, so, 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 so that's that was one consideration. Um, along ac- across the years, uh, as people have been using more and more of these implicit measures, people have also psychologists have also realized that it's not just that people are reluctant to talk about certain kinds of things or to reveal certain kinds of attitudes, but they may well be attitudes, as I suggested earlier, about which uh, we are not aware. Um, and some of these implicit measures might be able to get at some aspect of, of these, um, as it were, um, un- unconscious beliefs uh, and, and attitudes. So, so both these considerations played into, um, into motivating um, the, next, the next two studies. Uh, I wanted to be able to assess religious belief without asking people directly, um, I, either because I, I didn't think that they were willing to share with me how they actually thought, um, or, or maybe that they weren't aware about the, the sort of subtle changes in their in their attitudes toward toward certain things. Mm. Uh, in this case, religion, of course. Uh, so, hence study two and three. So, and you use this um, this test, the implicit association tests, which you used as um, this measure of, of implicit religious belief. Could you talk a little bit more about what that actually looks like? Sure. Um, I, I hesitate because there, there are two implicit measures, and one of them is easier to explain. But right, so I'll start with the implicit association test, 
which is actually the, the slightly more complicated one. Uh, we, this might make the, the next job easier. Okay. So the implicit association test has been around uh, since since the late 90s um, and is now actually gaining quite a lot of traction um, in America um, for, for, interestingly, political reasons. Uh, there's, a, there's a big move, especially um, in police forces in America at the moment, to educate people about what is known as implicit bias. Uh, so this idea that we might not hold explicit, conscious, propositional, prejudicial attitudes toward people, for example, of, of other of other ethnic groups, but our behaviors might suggest uh, that that we are at some level uh, making uh, stereotypical judgments, or or at some level we might be be unconsciously hostile toward people of other ethnic groups. Uh, and the reason people think this uh, at the moment, especially when it comes to the police force, um, is that there've been there's, there's been, as it were. Uh, and an epidemic of of uh, of policemen and women, mostly policemen, uh, shooting black people uh, for for unjustifiable, unwarranted reasons. So, so for the last few years now, um, this has been gaining traction in America, um, and and this task, implicit association test, um, is being shopped around police forces to, again as, as a pedagogical tool more more than anything else. To reveal to people that even if they're not self-consciously prejudicial, they might harbor some some stereotypical beliefs slightly under the surface. So this is how this task works. The example I like to use is slightly dated, uh, but but hopefully that's okay. Uh, I like to use the example of of people making judgments about Barack Obama on one hand uh, and and George W. Bush on the other, um, an American political example. Uh, so so when you first encounter the task, it tells you to categorize two kinds of stimuli. Uh, let's say photographs of Barack Obama and photographs of George W. Bush. And you want to categorize them um, by pressing keys on your keyboard or, or on some kind of uh, other device. Uh, so let's call this you know, key A and key B. Right? These are physical keys on, on your keyboard. Um, and so when you see a picture of Barack Obama, you press key A. When you see a picture of George W. Bush, you press key B. And, and we'll show you pictures over and over again for for a few minutes, right? So you might you might get fifty trials of this um, uh, randomly dispersed, right? So you know, Obama, Obama, Bush, Obama, Bush, Bush, Obama, Bush, and there you are happily categorizing along, and you get used to it, and you're fairly happy associating Obama with A um, and Bush with with key B, and then um, we we give you a little break, and we give you a different kind of task where this time you're meant to categorize words. Um, that that are positively valenced, so words like happy, words like good, um, and also words that are negatively valenced, so words like bad, words like angry. Um, and we tell you to categorize these words using those same keys, mm. uh, keys A and B. Uh, so say um, that you, you are to categorize positive words with A and negative words with B. So note what's going on here is that we're, we're getting you to categorize um, happy words with the same key that you use to categorize Obama's face. Right and negative words uh, are uh, correspond to to the key uh, that you used for George W. Bush's face earlier. So we get you to practice that, and and then we, we might get you to switch. Right. So where where again we're just presenting words to you, but but now we say the happy word should be key B and the angry word should be key A. So we get you to practice to get comfortable with with the task and different instantiations. Um, and then what we do is we put the tasks together. We present you faces of Obama and Bush. Um, like uh, and negative words and positive words one one at a time. So occasionally you'll see Obama, um, just a face. Occasionally you'll see good words. Occasionally you see bad words. Occasionally you'll see George W. Bush's face. And these are all randomized. Um, so, so you don't know 
um, at any given trial what, what's going to come up. And you have to categorize um, the, the words and or faces using, using those keys. Uh, and, and what we're trying to work out is, are, do you find it harder to associate positive words with Obama's face or with George W. Bush's face? And conversely, do you find it harder to categorize uh, bad words with the same key as the key for George W. Bush's face or Obama's face? So it's a, it's, there's a kind of task inconsistency in, in people's heads if they harbor certain attitudes. Right. And the way we measure task difficulty is using reaction times. So we work out whether or not you are slower to respond to positive words when it's mapped to the Obama key, mm-hmm. or whether or not you're slower to respond to those words when associated with the George W. Bush key, and vice versa for the negative words. So hopefully that's kind of clear. Yeah, no, that's a really nice explanation. So maybe we can move straight on to then how you operationalize that paradigm for the question that you're exploring here. What what was uh, what was the Barack Obama? What was the George W. Bush? And what was the positive and negative in this case? Right. So so, so we need to scale back a little bit. I think so. Okay. Mo- most of the implicit association tests in the world uh, are tests of of attitudes, which is to say. Um, positive and negative judgments of stimuli. In in the case of Barack Obama and George W. Bush, the target stimuli are Obama and Bush, uh, and the evaluation is, is just positive or negative. And, and this, this describes the vast majority of IETs in the world. It's always some kind of target stimulus um, and, uh, and and positivity and negativity because people are interested in how people feel um, about 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 the, the target stimuli in, in question. Um, this raises questions about okay, if that's if attitudes are associations between the target and some evaluation, positive or negative, like then what is a belief? Um, and from this particular cognitive perspective, you might say that a belief is a, is the association between a proposition or an entity, an object, um, um, and the concept of reality or non-reality, or the concept of truth and falsity. Right. So to hold the belief that proposition is true is just to associate that proposition with truth rather than falsity. Uh, converse, uh, and, and relatedly, uh, that to, to believe that X is real, um, any X is real, is to associate the target stimulus X with the concept of reality um, as opposed to, say, imaginariness. Mm-hmm. Um, so so on, on that basis, then, you can construct um, an implicit association test with um, any kind of entity as the target object. Um, and then you can use existential concepts or truth falsity concepts as, as, the, as the attributes. And so that's what I did. So I, I presented religious stimuli, uh, God, angel, demon, etc., cetera, uh, as the target stimuli. Um, and uh, and for, for, the, for the evaluative concepts, I had words like uh, true and false, real and imaginary. Uh, and so th- that sets up the two kinds of tasks um, that that people had to respond to. Okay, that's nicely set up. So, study two and study three also differ slightly. So, perhaps you can tell us what you found in study two, and then the variation that you did for study three, and and the results there. Right. So, in contrast to the imp- the explicit measures, uh, when I gave participants um, a religiosity measure that was implicit, which is to say the implicit association test, I found that everybody became more religious. There, there was no there's no difference between religious and non-religious people. So this is in contrast with, uh, with, with study one. Um, but I was suspicious of the result. Uh, I, like I didn't think that, well, it's not that I didn't think that it was real, right? But I thought, well, how, how can we be sure, right? So maybe it's just an artifact 
of this particular task. Um, there's a lot of debate about how good the IAT is, the, the implicit association test is for assessing people's attitudes. Um, and and these, these debates have gone on for years and years about whether or not it, uh, it gets anything real inside the mind of people or whether or not it's just assessing people's cultural knowledge of stereotypes or something like this, right? Um, so so I, I think I, I internalized some of these criticisms of the task itself and I thought, okay, um, is there a way to assess um, implicit attitudes uh, with, with another task, right? With, with a task that's not the implicit association test. Uh, and, and of course, there are um, there there are there are now four or five quite well established paradigms, uh, and so I went with uh, with the simplest one of them, uh, and this this one is just painfully simple. So, uh, if you go into a room full of people, and you ask them uh, to raise their hands uh, if they believe that you know tables existed in the world, um, people would be able to do so very quickly. They can do so you know like very like easily and, and rapidly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you ask the same people uh, whether or not, say, you know, molecules existed, uh, now they'll, they'll all also raise their, their hands, presumably. Most people believe that molecules are real things in the world, uh, but, but they might be a little bit more reluctant to do so. They might have to think a little while and then they stick their hands up. So you can just measure the magnitude of the response time um, kind of as a proxy of confidence, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, so, and so that's what I did. I presented people with, uh, with the same kinds of words, you know, God, heaven, hell, angels, demons, etc., and got people to categorize them as either real things or imaginary things. And of course, um, among the stimuli, I also added things that were uncontroversially real and uncon- uncontroversially imaginary. So, you know, tables on one hand and you know, Mickey Mouse on, on the other, that, that kind of thing. And so people happily categorized these, these things, real things, imaginary things, religious things, as either being real um, or imaginary. And all I did uh, was measure how long it took them. And what I cared about was how long they took to categorize um, the, the the religious objects as either real or imaginary. So 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 here's the way to think about this. If you're a non-religious person, uh, presumably you will categorize most of the religious objects as imaginary, but you might vary on how long it takes you to do that, right? And 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 conversely, if you're a religious person, uh, presumably you will categorize a lot of the religious objects as real things. But again, uh, some some things you might find. Uh, quicker than other things, and under different conditions, that might that might change how quickly you, you respond uh, to to the stimuli. So I wanted to know, uh, uh, having gotten people to think about death, how how does it affect people's speed at responding to this uh, as a proxy, as a as a kind of um, sideways oblique measure of how confident they are about about their beliefs. So once again, you've got people randomized into the control condition and the death thought priming condition, and then you're doing this task with them um, and comparing between those two groups. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's the same, basically the same experiment three times. Yes. Okay, so what did you find then when you had this, um, this third study? Right, so the third study, uh, we found the same thing as the second study, um, that, uh, that there, was no, there was no effect of people's prior religious beliefs. Um, People who were religious and non-religious all became, as it were, uh, more religious, or maybe more accurately, they got less religiously skeptical uh, when when they were made to think about about their own deaths. So that made us feel a little bit better, right? So we thought, okay, um, two different paradigms, um, and we get we get essentially the same effect. So let's get this clear: it doesn't matter what your religious beliefs are pre doing this experiment when you are primed with a death. Uh, scenario, you become either more religious or, as you say, less religiously skeptical as a result of thinking about death. That's correct. 
Okay, so so where does this leave you? Where, where in terms of your model of implicit and explicit influences on religiosity, what what do you derive from this? What do you infer from this? Sorry. Right. So I think here's where we have to be slightly cautious. Um, the by by far the best predictor of whether or not someone is religious. Um, is going to be whether or not they were brought up like that. Like I know lots of people rebel against their parents and all the rest of it, but but it's still the case that statistically speaking, um, you know, like two of the best predictors of of whether someone's religious is you know where they grew up, uh, and and you know what their parents did to them, uh, in terms of, of religion when when they were growing up. So 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 these these kinds of experiments um, and 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 also other kinds of studies that look at other factors beyond where people grew up and, and what their parents were like religiously um, explain relatively little um, uh, of, of the variance, um, as, as we say, uh, in a jargony kind of way, uh, which is to say in, in all these effects are small, right? Um, and, and this is not just my study. This is, this is any study uh, that, takes a, that takes an experimental approach to religion or even uh, correlational studies that try and assess um, other, other psychological factors that predict religious beliefs, the effects are, are generally quite small. Um, and that tells you, I think, two things. One, one is, as I say, the best predictor is religious upbringing and like what country you were brought up in. But the other thing is that, you know, religion is multifactorial. Like, like, like all interesting human behavior, um, religion, you know, whether or not people are religious believers or whether or not they go to church or whether or not they pray, etc. cetera, um, there, there are just many, many interacting causes. And as scientists, we, we try to isolate uh, the causes one by one or two by two if you're looking for interaction but but almost by definition um, we're looking at very small effects and and I think that's okay as long as we realize as, as long as we're clear about what's going on is that we are we are purposely reducing the phenomenon so that we can look at we can examine single causal factors so I think what I learned from the study was it's not. It's not as if I think that I've like explained religion or something like this, right? But I think I think the study led me to think that that there's some traction to people's intuitions that the fear of death has something to do with with religious belief that that it contributes in some way to uh, to to pushing people uh, to at least thinking about religion. Um, however, I, I also think that this might be a culturally constrained effect. Um, it's true that that most religious traditions and most cultural traditions, more broadly. Um, involves some kind of afterlife belief. Uh, there, there are some, there are some, there are some people groups for which uh, the afterlife is not um, is, is not a feature of their cultural beliefs, but but those are rare. Um, so so in in that sense, I'm I'm not anthropologically skeptical that religion um, and and death are are closely related in in this way. Uh, but but I do think that that we we were much more likely to find the effect in a culture where religion and the afterlife are tied so closely together. Um, uh, so the study was run in New Zealand. So in, in the West, uh, the afterlife is just a religious thing. Uh, and Christianity um, has a lot to say about, about what happens when you die or even what happens after Jesus died and you know, comes back to life. Um, whereas in, in cultural traditions where this is less salient, I, I suspect that the effect will either be smaller or, or, or impossible to detect. So, so, I mean, it certainly made me think about, okay, like what would I find if, if I went somewhere else, if I went to, to China, if I went to Japan, something like this. Uh, and I don't know the answer to that question, but I have my suspicions that the effects would be different, uh, which is to say smaller or non-existent. Hmm. I'm curious what you mentioned before around, um, you mentioned something about religious beliefs that perhaps are not your own and what the effects there might be. Could you speak a little bit about that? 
Right. So, so a few years before I started my doctorate, uh, so, so this, this study that we're talking about now, the, the 2012 paper came out of my, my PhD work. Um, the, before I, I came, I came along. There wasn't very much work on this, but but there was one one fairly influential paper, uh, which which tried these experiments in different ways, mostly using explicit measures. So they, they didn't do um, the, the thing with the implicit association test. Uh, and among among their battery of studies, there, there was one study which got um, their their Christian participants to answer questions about um, about the belief in shamanic spirits and the belief in the Buddha. So, so they, they tried to diversify their religiosity questions. Um, and, and there was some suggestion there that when when they were made to think about death, um, Christian participants were were more willing to accept the possibility of shamanic spirits existing. Um, so so and, and shamanic spirits are, are, you know, like a not a particularly Christian belief. Uh, and a lot of conservative Christian people would say that this, this, these kinds of beliefs are, are anathema to, to Christian faith. Uh, so so that, that, that gives some indication um, that when people think about death, they become uh, not only more religious, but also more religiously promiscuous, which is to say, uh, you know, almost any God will do, right? Uh, it's not just my own God, but like, you know, like, you know, shamanic spirits, why, why not, right? Like if that's going to help me obtain the afterlife, that's okay too. So, so it's not definitive because it's, it's one study. The effects were small, um, but but what what the effect it had on me was reading it and thinking, okay, um, th- this might be some indication that 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 mortality salience, the, the the thoughts of death increases religious promiscuity. That's that's really curious. Um, I guess I was also struck by um, something in your paper where you say that actually some religious beliefs are not particularly comforting. Um, they are actually quite. <laughs> punitive as well and I, I wonder about um, when you uh, perhaps look at cultures or uh, religious faiths uh, groups of people who believe in that and, and they have this um, not so nice uh, um, scenario about what might happen after they die and, and uh, what how this would work out for them yeah exactly I mean um, a lot of the examples that I gave uh, of of um, uh, <laughs> as it were unpleasant, Afterlife scenarios, uh, they don't tend to be around anymore, uh, and you know there might be good cultural evolutionary reasons for why this might be the case. It's just not very popular to think that you know when you when you die, what will happen is, uh, as in one Mesopotamian legend, you fall eternally in a dark tunnel. Uh, it's not it's not the most pleasant uh, and and easily transmittable idea in the world. Uh, so, so it's not so common anymore. But, but you know, it's not as though Christian, Muslim, and oh, Christian and Muslim, not so much Jewish. Uh, but it's not as though Christian and Muslim views of the afterlife are straightforwardly pleasant, right? It's only pleasant for some people, in, for at least to most religious, uh, to most to most Christians and Muslims, um, because there's there's a category of people who who enjoy like a pleasant afterlife, and then lots of people enjoy really terrible afterlives. Um, so, so this this idea that that there is an unpleasant afterlife lingers. Um, it, like it would be interesting if, if I if I could find a population of people whose view of the afterlife is such that basically everybody uh, will have a not great time, uh, and and I don't, I don't know what I would find in, in that case. But but this is again the the thing I said earlier about trying to figure out whether or not these experiments will, will replicate in in a in an even slightly different, if not radically different, cultural context. Sure, I mean it's not much of a sales pitch, is it? And perhaps that's why it doesn't hang around much. Um, right, but. Um, so you've identified that perhaps, you know, even though it perhaps might be a small effect, there is, there does seem to be this perhaps um, 
religious scepticism may um, wane a little uh, when people are thinking about their own death and what that might right. be like. So who should care about this, John? What's the point <laughs> of this? Where are you going uh, with this? this? This just, you know, it gives me nightmares about uh, about uh, funding bodies asking about impact and how this will change the world. I I don't know. Um I, I like I, I like to think that people are curious. Sorry, <clears throat> I like to think that people are curious about how how their minds work, right, and what motivates their their behaviors. Um, of course, I, I'm wrong about this because most people are not particularly curious about about the sort of inner and hidden motivations about their own behaviors or other people's behaviors. Um, but but I like to think that at least we can convince people to think a little bit more about why they do why they do the things they do and why they they believe the things that they believe morally, religiously, politically. And it, it might lead to some some uh, useful, uh, critical self-reflection, right? And maybe that will make the world a better place. So who, who should care about this? Like, I think people who are curious about where religion comes from, uh, maybe uh, in particular uh, where their own religiosity comes from, um, uh, and, and, you know, conversely, people who are not religious themselves, but who puzzle over why on earth other people might be will be interested in, in this kind of work and, and this this one this one paper is um, is just a drop in the the growing burgeoning field of trying to study religion in in a lab uh, and so there, there, there are a bunch of uh, of researchers now who are, who are dedicating their careers to trying to work out what's going on in people's heads when 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 they're when they're being religious. Um, I you know may, maybe religious leaders uh, will be interested in this kind of work. I, I like I, I doubt it. I, I guess, uh, but yeah, like, I, I like to think that it's, it's people who are curious about themselves and about other people. I think, but I think that's true for psychology more broadly. You know, why study psychology? Because humans are interesting. Uh, and I make no apology for thinking that humans are interesting, uh, anthropocentric though that may be. I think we share that interest. And I guess one of the things that I was thinking about when I was reading your paper is the demographic kind of um, group, uh, a large group of people that are um, aging in New Zealand, in the UK, in the States, um, all around the developed world, where I'm thinking about the healthcare professionals who may be looking after them and also um, witnessing and experiencing their aging and perhaps coming closer and, and more in touch with their own death and where that experience might lead these people to. Yeah, and I, I totally appreciate it. it has a lot to do with their early exposure, their their ideas, their upbringing, and what it is that they um, were brought up with from, from an early age. But um, I think you may be identifying something that, although it might be a small effect, may be affecting a greater number of people uh, as we progress through time. So, so this this is a really interesting suggestion for, for a few reasons. Um so it, it is true that at least in, in the West, um, older people are more religious than younger people. Now, most of this effect is explained just in terms of the cohorts, right? So like, which is to say uh, the generations in which they were brought up were just more religious. So, so it's not to do with that people get more religious as they get older, right? Um, but, but, <clears throat> but, but there's still some debate over whether or not that's a thing. Right. So, so we, we know that older people are more religious than younger people. We know that that's mostly because uh, the worlds in which they grew up were just more religious worlds. 
Um, what we're not sure about is whether or not there is any effect of aging on, on religiosity. Mm. Um, and, and that's still an open an open empirical question, which is a difficult one to assess because it requires longitudinal research. You, you have to follow people uh, throughout their, their, their lives. And there's not very much work done on this yet. Um, and that sort of thing has implications for, as you say, um, medical and palliative practice. Um, it's also the case, however, at le- again, at least in the West, uh, I, I haven't seen this so much outside of uh, of the American context, actually. Um, uh, and yeah, I'm trying to think whether or not I have New Zealand data. I don't think I have New Zealand data on this, uh, but certainly I have American data on this that, that replicates a finding, which is that um, people get less um, anxious about their deaths as they get older, um, at, least, at least in terms of their self-reported attitudes. And, and, and we're not entirely sure why. So, and, but, but if that's true, then this might be uh, I guess less of a problem for elderly care, although that's not quite the same as saying that this is not a problem for uh, end of life care per se, be- because th- these these trends over the years uh, might not quite capture what it's like at the, at the moment and hours and days before one is dying, right? So so th- these two uh, these two are not perfectly correlated. Um, uh, and and so okay, let's say it's the case. Let's say it's the case that people get more religious as they are dying. Um, this might mean that um, hospitals um, and hospices might want to make provision for that. But for the most part, they, they kind of already do. I don't know if more provision is required. But it does lead to another question, which is whether or not religiosity helps people uh, in the end, at the end of life, whether it makes them less anxious about death um, as they lie dying. Uh, and there's remarkably little evidence that this is true. Hmm. Um, it, 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 it doesn't, I hasten, I hasten to say that it just doesn't help. Right. But, but at least there's no evidence that it does. I think, um, I mean, if I, if I were to, if I were to, to hold forth an opinion on this, I tend to think that it's, it's the confidence of whatever beliefs that you hold that are helpful to you psychologically, um, rather than the content of those beliefs. Right. And, and, and part of my evidence for this is that, um, if you run, if you run large scale, correlational studies on the relationship between death anxiety and religious belief, um, again, in the West, what you tend to find is, is, um, is that atheists and, and devout religious people share in common low levels of death anxiety compared to like people in the middle. So either nominally non-religious or nominally religious people. Um, so, so that indicates to me, um, maybe, right, that, that what's going on is that um, just confidence helps. Um, emotionally rather than what you what you're confident about right whether or not there is a god or, or, or not etc that's it for this week's show thank you for listening if you are new to the podcast welcome if you've been listening for a while welcome back and um, there is a whole host of back episodes to investigate and explore if you haven't had a chance to listen to our back catalog please check through and flick through the device and look at what's behind the first screen you may see some interesting nuggets there for you to listen to um, you can follow us on, uh, on twitter at wcwtp or my own account at saab s-a-r-b saab johal your host and producer for today's show you can find us on facebook or at whocareswhatsthepoint.com and you can send us an email there or you can find me on google i'm available to be contacted in many different places until next week thanks very much for listening and don't forget 
Cookies.